we're continuing our series in Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 8. And I just want to say a a larger note on programming for the rest of the year. Uh, Initially, we've been in the book of Acts basically since June, and it was my intention to finish and go through the entire book, all 28 chapters, uh, before the season of Advent starts in the beginning of December. But that's probably not going to be possible. Uh, I realized, like, looking through the book closer and looking at how many weeks we have left, uh, to finish by then, I'd have to really, like, rush over a lot of the different chapters and sections. And I think we've been benefiting by really getting into the book and the details. One of my ambitions for us is for me not to just give you, like, life applications, because I don't think that's really going to help. I think you guys have grown up where it's like a three-point sermon, and you, you hear, like, these are the things that I need to apply. My ambition for us is more for you to start having, like, a scriptural sensibility, for you to start inhabiting the world of the text, uh, of what is presented to us in Acts. Uh, I want you to start seeing your own life through the lens of the stories you're hearing in the Bible, especially in this book, to start having a sort of a biblical imagination. So instead of, you know, finishing up and trying to rush by the beginning of Advent, I'm just going to slow down, uh, and it will take as long as it takes, and we'll finish Acts. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing. Um, last week, we talked about Stephen being killed by the Jewish leaders. He was stoned to death. Uh, it was a little depressing, but I, I hope fruitful for you to realize what was going on then, why the Jews were so angry at Stephen because he was saying that their understanding, the story that they had told themselves, it was all about story and identity. The story they had told themselves about the law and the temple and the central place of both things in their identity and how God was going to use the Jewish nation to bless the world, they had a very particular understanding of how that was going to work. And Stephen was coming and saying, actually, those things are important, but they've all been fulfilled in Christ. And that totally messed up their understanding of what the meaning of the world was, what their identity was, and as we talked about last week, when your identity, when your core identity is threatened, you become violent. And the only way to have an identity that is not violent like that, to have an identity of peace, is to be rooted in Christ, who lived totally out of devotion to God and to neighbor. It's a a totally different way of living. So that's what we talked about last time, and that At the end of that story, we see that his execution, when he's stoned to death, is overseen by this guy named Saul. So this is the introduction of Saul in the story. He's going to become very significant later on when he's converted and becomes Paul. That's in chapter 9. But right now, Saul is overseeing the the execution. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 8. So I'm going to read the chapter to you, uh, maybe until verse 25 or 26, and then we'll go from there. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So let's pause there. This is what's happening. Saul has just overseen the execution of Stephen. Do you guys remember who Stephen was? He was one of the seven deacons. That's from Acts chapter 6. The seven Hellenistic Jews who were sent to oversee the Greek-speaking Jewish part of the church. Because we talked about how there were Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews, and there was a lot of tension between both groups uh, because they were culturally very different. And Stephen was one of those deacons, and he started preaching to the the rest of the Greek uh, Greek-speaking Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. That's how he got in trouble. After Stephen is killed, Saul is going around 
And the church is all united in Jerusalem, and he's going around to the different believers' houses and dragging them to prison, probably to be executed as well. So because Saul is doing that in Jerusalem, the church is scattering throughout the rest of the region. They're no longer concentrated in Jerusalem. So that's when we get to verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So I want to pause again to make sure you guys are tracking with the story. So they've all been scattered, right? And Philip, who was another one of the seven deacons appointed by the church by the apostles, he's another Greek-speaking Jew, he, like the rest of the church, everywhere they go, they're preaching the gospel. Philip ends up in Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. And we'll talk about that, the significance of that, a little later. And a lot of people are starting to believe in Christ because of the signs he's doing. And there's this one guy called Simon the Magician. And so he's kind of famous in Samaria as a magician, as someone very powerful. He's called the great power of God. And he sees Philip doing this, and he's amazed, and he starts to believe. He starts to believe, and he's baptized. And it looks like he's following Philip everywhere he goes, almost like he's trying to see how is Philip doing the things he's doing? How is he healing people? How is he doing these signs? So let's get back to verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So again, pause just to make sure you guys are tracking with all this. This seems a little confusing, right? So Philip has gone to Samaria. He's preached the gospel that Jesus Christ is the true Lord of the world. The Samaritans have believed that. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus. But still, the apostles in Jerusalem have to send Peter and John to lay their hands on them. Because there's this sense that they haven't really been, been filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a confusion there. Why do you have to receive the Holy Spirit after? Is that something that's true for all the rest of us? We'll talk about that as well. So let's continue in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. 
After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So just to summarize that last part of the story for you guys, what happens? Peter and John start laying their hands on people, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And he must be amazed because something extraordinary is happening upon these people who, whom the apostles have laid their hands on. And so he's saying, I, I don't want to just be able to do like the things that these other people are doing. I want to have the apostles' power. In order, I want to have that power to lay my hands on someone and give them power. How do I get that? And so he offers to pay Peter and John money for that if they can give that power to him. And that's when Peter basically says, to hell with you and your money. Like, literally, that's what he's saying. Uh, May your money perish with you. And basically, just, it's a very harsh rebuke. I mean, when you hear it, you're like, Peter, is this, this is not really a nice thing to say. This guy's a new believer. Maybe he doesn't know. He doesn't understand. So why is Peter so harsh? We'll talk about that as well. Okay, the, the main theme tying together this passage is our inability to control God. Our inability to control God. One of the things that I think is a a huge struggle, especially for our generation living in America, is this idea of control. We want to control everything. We have have plans. We have like five-point plans for the next five years. Here's where I'm going to be here. Here's where I'm going to be here. Here's where I'm going to be here. We want to control our time right? Because we want to steward our time. We're all afraid of missing out. So like we want to be able to say to someone if something better comes along, hey, uh, actually I'm not going to be able to. So we're very, we don't make commitments. Do you get what I'm saying? Why don't we make commitments? We don't make commitments in relationships. We don't make commitments in terms of uh, helping out people because we want to control our time. Because we want to have, maintain that sense of control. And so when things happen that break that sense of control, when a break, breakup comes, when there's someone flunks a test, when you flunk out of school, something bad happens, it really messes with us because it messes with our sense of control. Like, if we wanted to end something, we want to end it on our terms. We don't want this other thing. And so one of the, I think, central messages here is that it is actually good that God is in control. Because when the good God is in control because of his sovereignty, things work out in an even more amazing way, in an even more glorious way than we could have expected. And so it's actually a great comfort to us that God is in control because one of the sad things about us is if we were actually in control, we would make really, really stupid choices. That's the truth. A lot of the things we want to do are not that good things. Uh, And so God's God's sovereignty is actually a comfort to us because by exercising his control, even more amazing, even more beautiful things happen. Beautiful things come out of the dust. So let's kind of go through that, and I'll try and highlight how that works here. Um, the first part of the section, like I talked about, was the persecution against the church, right? On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So remember, uh, this idea that Jesus is Lord goes against all the Jewish sensibilities like we were talking about earlier. It's a scandal to the Jews. That's what Paul, Saul, who's killing the church, later on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the gospel message that a crucified Messiah is actually the Lord of the universe is a scandal to the Jews. We don't really, because we grew up with images of the cross, it doesn't seem like an offense to us. But imagine if I told you 
that uh, someone who had been on the electric chair, who died through an electric chair, was the Lord of the universe. That's the kind of shocking claim. Because and it's, it's even worse than that, actually. I, I kind of hesitate to say this, but it's almost like a terrorist was the actual Messiah of the world. Because the crucifixion, that was the most torturous way, the most humiliating way. You're naked. You're hanging from a tree. Like, people are mocking you as you're hanging up there. It's the most humiliating way to die. And they reserved it only for people who were terrorists or traitors to the Roman Empire. So when the apostles go around saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, they're like the crucified guy? That's actually an incredibly offensive thing to say. And we've lost a sense of that because we grow up as Christians and we grow up with images of the cross everywhere. Um, And so God is, there, there rises a question. Why is God allowing these persecutions to happen against the church? Because we've seen throughout the book of Acts that God is with the church. He's poured out his spirit upon the apostles. He's brought all the poor and the rich together. Do you guys remember that? The rich people are selling their land to take care of the poor. It's pretty amazing. He strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead whenever they lie to the church. So God is powerful. He's doing things. He's healing people. Why is God allowing this? Jesus' will for the apostles and for the church. Do you guys remember in the beginning of Acts? What does he say? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the the apostles, they weren't doing anything wrong, but they were stuck in Jerusalem. And paradoxically, through this persecution, that is how the word started to go out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And actually, that's what we see in the example of Philip in Samaria. So we can never doubt the faithfulness of God because His plan is greater and more joyous and more wonderful than anything that we had in store for ourselves. Our smaller plans can't compete. Um, And we get discouraged when things don't go according to our plan. When we had this idea that something was going to happen, we get so discouraged. But instead, we need to have trust and confidence that God is doing something in our lives that is even better. Uh, And so, again, Philip is an example of this in this story and also in the story that we're going to talk about next week with Ethiopia. God uses the persecution to let the gospel message come to Samaria and also to Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you guys remember that story, the Ethiopian eunuch? We'll talk about that next week. So this is verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So who is Philip again? Philip is one of the Hellenistic Jews, uh, ordained as a deacon with Stephen. And in Acts, we see how Philip, like, travels throughout the world throughout, um, through this scattering. He ends up in Samaria. He ends up in Gaza, where he meets up with the Ethiopian eunuch. And finally, later on in the book of Acts, we see that he has four daughters, and he's living in a coastal area near the Mediterranean. So God is using Philip this way. Who are the Samaritans that Philip is preaching to? You guys have heard stories of the good Samaritans. They show up in the gospel messages, but we don't really have a sense of who they are or why the Jews dislike them so much. Um, so Do you guys remember the story of the Jewish exile, how the Jews are exiled away, they're conquered away from Judea? Well, the Jews are the southern two tribes. There are northern ten tribes. And after the the Assyrians had earlier conquered the Israelites, but some of the Israelites were able to escape and flee south 
to where the Jews were. And after the exile, they started intermarrying with other peoples who had repopulated the lands. So the Samaritans are actually Israelites, but they had mixed with other people, and they didn't worship at the temple with the rest of the Jews. So the Jews saw them as, like, half-bloods as dirty, as like mongrels. And so they didn't want to associate with them. Whereas the uh, Samaritans still believed in Yahweh, still believed that there was a Messiah coming, but they didn't want anything to do with the Jews because the Jews looked down on them. So it's almost, it's like a tragic story. They're they're brothers, basically, but they hate each other. Um, And the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to them and it leads to reconciliation here. The scattering led to healing between the Samaritans and between the Jews. Um, so, that, so then, uh, hold on one second. So, so then that's what leads Simon to start to want to covet that power. Uh, he, he, so start verse 9 here. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So this is not like... Because we know the story that comes later, there's, there, there's a temptation to doubt this. Was, did Simon really believe? Was he really baptized? There's no question here. He believed Philip as he proclaimed the gospel. And he was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere. So there's no doubt about that. Don't question that. Did, what did, was Simon a real believer? He was a real believer. So why did the apostles come to lay on their hands? Well, because of the history between the Samaritans and the Jews, the Jewish people like the Jerusalem church wanted to make sure that there was no reason to doubt that the Samaritans were fully included in the life of the church. Philip was out there doing kind of like random things, but it wasn't like he had permission from any of the leadership to do it. And we can't control that. No one can control that. But the apostles are sent to verify that the Spirit of God really was working on them and to lay their hands on them. Uh, so actually in the book of Acts, we've, we see a lot of different ways that the Holy Spirit arrives on people. Usually what we find is that when people are baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Okay, At the moment of baptism is when they are given the gift of the Spirit. But there are some stories like here where they are baptized first and then they receive the Holy Spirit afterward. And then there are other stories where they receive the Holy Spirit and the apostles hear about that and they're like, what? And so then they go and then they're like, oh, okay, you need to get baptized then. So there's no one method. And a lot of churches, I know we come from different church backgrounds, but a lot of churches make a big deal about that. Like they, they try to structure it. Uh, they try to say, it's at the moment of baptism that you receive the Spirit only. So don't let anyone ever pray for you for, to receive the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. Uh, And then other people make you doubt. They're like, well, you've been baptized, but have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Other people say that a lot of, typically more charismatic or Pentecostal churches. They're like, you need to have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, otherwise you're not really baptized. The book of Acts shows us that it happens in a lot of different ways. And again, this comes back to that theme of we can't control God. God God is wild. He does things in unexpected ways. But 
there is a purpose, and that's what Peter and John do. There is a purpose of the church coming and verifying that what is happening is in line with what the gospel really is. And that's actually what happens to a lot of us. Were most of you guys confirmed in the church? The confirmation process where the bishop comes and lays his hands on you is basically mimicking, it's rooted on what's happening in Acts chapter 8. It's trying to make sure and verify that your baptism when you were an infant, most of us I'm sure were baptized as infants, was really true and that, it's re- and that the Holy Spirit really is active and part of your life. Uh, so that kind of just explains what's going on there. Uh, now we come to verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a, a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So, again, Simon really was believed, really did believe, and he really was baptized. But Peter says, you have a heart full of bitterness and captive to sin. So let this, I think this is a warning to us, actually. Just because you believe and are baptized does not mean that now you are, everything is good with you. Now you are holy and perfect. Does that make sense? Uh, Simon had been a leading figure. The people called him the great power of God. And it seems like his heart is still motivated by lust for status and recognition. And he may even be envious of the disciples who are doing that. And this is actually really scary because even if you're like active in church and you're active in one way or you're active in different ministry contexts, your heart may not be motivated for the right reason. It may be like Simon the magician. You're motivated by wanting that recognition, like I'm the person who sings so well, or I'm the person who preaches, or I'm the person, like that's me. And, that, and Peter is saying that's actually the road to hell. That's the road to damnation. Your heart is still full of envy and bitterness. Simon wanted to be able, the, the second thing that I want to highlight is, Simon wanted to be able to control the spirit of God in this, right? He wants the power that Peter and John have to lay their hands on someone and they receive the Holy Spirit. And, and this is due to a fundamental misunderstanding of who the Spirit is. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is not a power that Peter and John have, where the, the Spirit of God that they use is their instrument. They decide who gets the Spirit. It's actually the total opposite, Because the real truth is that Peter and John are the instruments of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a person who is, again, wild and active. There's this line C.S. Lewis has uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia when uh, Lucy first hears that Aslan is a lion, right? And so she's concerned and she asks, I think, Mr. Beaver. She, She asks Mr. Beaver, is he a tame lion? Like, is he okay? Is he safe? Is he safe? Uh, And Mr. Beaver says, he's not a tame lion. And he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the way God is with us. God is not safe. God calls you into crazy things. Like Saul is dragging people out of their homes and putting them into prison. God is not safe. He's not tame, but he's good. And so you can trust, and that's actually a huge comfort to us because that means that no matter what is happening, we can trust that it is for our good. The other thing I wanted to comment on is Peter's uh, 
harsh words to Simon, like we talked about earlier. And I, I think this is just a short point, but I think stern rebukes are sometimes necessary to bring repentance to people. Because how does Simon respond to that? He gets scared, right? And he says, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Um, I think a lot of times we shy away from the stern rebukes because especially in our culture, like we hate, we hate feeling judged and we don't want anyone else to think that we're judging them. And so we don't think it's our place to have that rebuke. And that is true. Like sometimes maybe it's not your place, right? Especially if you start thinking you're more self-righteous. But especially in the context of the church from a church leader, if you are not able to fight against the, the devil who's always trying to come in and break into the church and lead people astray, especially, and especially to lead them according to whatever the filth in their hearts already wants to lead them to, then you're failing your role as a church leader. And so sometimes that stern rebuke to say, you are totally on the wrong path. Yeah, you've been, yeah, you're a believer. Yeah, you've been baptized. But what you are doing, what you are thinking right now is a road to damnation. You are destroying yourself and you're destroying the people around you. That's actually a valid part for the church to play. And I know that's an unpopular thing to say in our culture now. So again, I just want to emphasize one last time, the spirit is not our power. The spirit is the spirit of the sovereign God who blows wherever he wants or wills. We are the instruments of the Holy Spirit, and that's the way we have to understand our lives. And so when bad things happen, when frustrating things happen, when disappointing things happen, we have to trust that the spirit is operating through us. And that's what we're going to pick up with the story of Philip next week. So let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that... um, that we become more and more excited about this story of the early church in Acts, uh, that we have developed a longing to be like that church. Uh, Father, and I, I just pray that we submit to your spirit, who is a person, not a thing. All these things I ask in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, let's stand and say the Apostles' Creed.